Okay. We are heading to Jude today. Uh, probably no big surprise, but uh, we are going to look at verse 11 today. But we are going to start in verse 4, just because that's where we need to. I do want to thank you for prayers for Pamela and I as we traveled last week to Florida. Tough place to suffer, isn't it? Um, we were down south of Sarasota, a beautiful, beautiful place, and, and spent time with my family. I got to see all of my brothers and sisters and their spouses were there, and that's uh, quite a unique thing uh, for us to do. I think we get together about every 12 or 13 years, I think, as a group, and, and uh, so it was good to see all them. I, I saw an aunt and uncle that I haven't seen for 30 years, I think. Uh, a cousin that I haven't seen since I was in junior high, um, but we had cousins there and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters, and, and we uh, spent some time reflecting on my father. It was his memorial service, and we put my mother in the picture there, too. You just couldn't separate those two, um, but uh, the Lord has them in heaven with him now, and uh, I was able to speak twice to my brothers and sisters and share the gospel very directly to each each of them in that opportunity and I thank the Lord for that. Um, and so when it was all done, it was a very pleasant, wonderful experience and and we were thankful for that and thank you for your prayers. Um, pray that uh, those who are in my family that need to know the Lord, that that message will still resonate in their hearts, that uh, the Lord will speak to them. My parents set a, a spectacular testimony before them. And so my job was really easy to speak at the memorial service. Uh, I just had to say, look at mom and dad. <laughs> and that was a very easy, easy thing to do. I know maybe I'm a little biased or something, and I'm sorry about this, but I had the best parents in the world. <laughs> and so yours are just not there like mine. But... Uh, they, they were fantastic. The Lord blessed us with wonderful parents who loved him dearly and, and served him with their heart and with their lives. And and so I long for the day to see him again, and I will. And it might be today. So uh, we we just had a good time being with family last week, and I thank you for your prayers for that. Um, today we're in the book of Jude, and of course we've been there for a while now. I have uh, Sermon 15 written at the top of my notes, um, which is a long time for a book with only 24 verses. Uh, but that's or 25 verses. Don't want to short you on one. Um, last time we were together, we spent time in a, in a kind of a quicker way from verse 5 through verse 10. Um, and uh, part of that is 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 necessary to deal with as a big chunk, and some of it is tempting to deal with as individual little pieces all the way through. Uh, we're talking about the fact that the evidence of the Old Testament is that God does judge sinful people, and false teachers particularly. And sometimes I think we get lost in the idea that these people are dominating, and they are. there's a lot of domination in our world today in churches and seminaries and other places where false teaching is going on, and you think, how do they get away with that? Well, they don't. 
And the Old Testament record sets that straight for us. And we talked about that last week, that God does deal with false teaching. And I'm going to call them false teachers here. Though Jude does not call them false teachers, he, he said in, in verse number 3 that they had crept in. Uh, in verse number 4, rather, they crept in unnoticed. And I told you last time, J. Vernon McGee says, just call them creeps. Because that's what they are. They've crept in. Um, but they are in the church. And I, I, I call them false teachers because of the very fact that uh, false teachers have to have followers. They have to have followers. It'd be great if nobody followed them. Then there, they wouldn't have any impact and there wouldn't be any alarm here. But when Peter wrote about the same thing in Second Peter 2 verse 1, he says, false prophets arose in the among the people, that's Old Testament, just as there will also be false teachers among you. And so he called them false teachers um, as well. And the problem is that um, they don't have to be teachers to be influential. People could influence a church even if they are not the teacher or the pastor. There could be just people among them that uh, lead people astray. And so we want to be careful as we're studying through this. I'm going to call them false teachers because they are giving out a message that people are following. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the pastor or they're a Sunday school teacher. It could be anybody that has a following. But verse 4 says, Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons. Just mark that in your thinking. Ungodly persons. Who have turned the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. It's a basic thing, and it's not a minor thing, but it's a basic thing, is that they have turned grace into sin. And they have denied the Lord. And that's what section 5 through verse 16 is dealing with. And that's why we're in this section studying it. We did half of it last time, 5 through 10. But I go back to our need, and I have to start with our need more than I have to do with discerning what's in this passage and talking about it with you. Our need is maturity in Christ. And I will underscore that every single chance I get. We need to mature in Jesus Christ. That is our defense. That is our defense against false teaching and all the rest. We are told that uh, God loves us throughout this book. It's in many verses about God's love for us. Verse 1, verse 2, you get later on into uh, the section of verse number 21, for example. We start talking about the fact that we're loved by God, but we need to be built up in it. We need to grow in it. We need to mature in it. We need to know it. Because more than anything, I'll tell you, a false teacher wants to separate you from the God. They want to separate you from that. And they will start on what he thinks of you. And I can tell you that from my heart, and I can tell you that from my experience. Because I grew up in a church that told me all the time God was angry with me. I did not fully understand that God loved me till I got to Bible college. And it was presented to me in Romans chapter 5, and I nearly broke down in tears. I didn't know he loved me. And they had convinced me week after week after week that I better watch out. He's waiting to step on me like a bug, zap me with lightning. He's really angry at me. 
And I grew up in a system like that. And if I overemphasize God's love, which is impossible anyway, but if I ever overemphasize it, it's only because, boy, am I like a thirsty plant. I've got to have more of that talk. And we need to grow in that, because that's where the false teacher will start to separate the sheep from the shepherd. They don't want you to think kindly of your shepherd. And so we need to mature. And that's, that's for us. Personally, we need to be built up in that. And that's not just so that we're stronger and mature and all these other things. But that's the only way we're going to help other people. The only way we're going to help other people is if we're strong. We have to be mature before we can reach out and grab somebody who's not mature and help them along the way. You will never take them farther than you are yourself when it comes to help. I'm reminded of that, just how simple that is. But that's in Jude's book, by the way, that we're working with here. Just like I've told you this before, we're getting on an airplane this past week, and, and they start with that safety instruction that everybody ignores. About, you know, the masks and the exits and all those other things that they have to tell us. And, and they emphasize it all the all, over again. If in the unlikely event of losing cabin pressure, right? I like the way they always say, unlikely. They also said, it's just a little bit of turbulence. <laughs> we hit something up there. I don't know what it was, but the plane bounced. It was like, boom! It's like hitting a curb. And you say, Where's the, who put the curb up here? It was a terrible experience. Did you feel it in the whole plane? Well, in, in the unlikely case of something like this, they said these masks will fall down. And they say, always put yours on first before you help somebody else at theirs. Honestly, you can't help them if you're passed out. All right? It's just a simple thing. But the same picture, if you will, here in Jude, we are called to maturity in verse 20 and 21 so that, verse 22 and 23, we can help others. And that's where we're going with our whole study. You understand that? I just bring you back around to it and you say, but pastor, this is not easy stuff. I know it's not easy stuff. That's why God is able. And it's not us, is it? It's him working in us. And that's why we need to stay close to him. We've got to know him. We've got to know him better. We've got to be stronger. We've got to go deeper than we've ever been before. We've got to know him better. Because you're not doing this for yourself. Let's remember that. This is not for yourself. Your ministry is to help your brother and sister to be more Christ-like. So I want to ask you something as a pastor does. If maturity is that important, if we're supposed to become Christ-like, how do you know when you've made it? How do you know when you're mature and you're Christ-like? like. Let me give you a little test. You will act like Jesus Christ. You will think like Jesus Christ. You will respond like Jesus Christ. You will speak like Jesus Christ. You will love like Jesus Christ. How are you doing? Perfect. That's what we're supposed to do, Joel. We're supposed to be that way. And I just, I just ask you this morning, examine your heart. Are you growing in Christ? It's that important. 
It's your defense against false teaching, and it is your help for your brother and sister. And if we're not doing that, we're, we're disobedient. And I don't want to be labeled that way. Do you? I know we don't. So this is our call, and I bring it up to you because we have a purpose in this, and this is not just that we're masters of the book of Jude or that we could identify a false teacher. It's so that we're maturing so we can rescue because the false teachers have come. It's not a matter of avoiding them. It's not a matter of saying, well, maybe they won't show up at our door. The false teachers have come already into our world. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. And there's an urgency to all this, and I just throw it out to you, because the threat is real, the danger is there, and they've already crept in, Jude says. So, we're going through a description section, verse 5 through verse number 16. And I'm going to camp on verse number 11 in just a moment, but I just want to show you this information. Second Peter does deal with this, and we're doing that in the evening service, and we are recording it, so it's online if you want to catch up to it, if you don't make our evening service. But uh, we are in much more detail in the evening service for several reasons, and I shared them last time, not only because Peter has a lot more to say about the topics, but some of them are just a little beyond the, the ears that are in this room, just to be careful. Um, not that I'm afraid to preach God's word. It's just the nature of, this, of the information. It's, it's for maturing Christian, but uh, certainly. So that's going on in the evening. But he started in verse 5, working through verse 10, with summaries of the way God has dealt with this problem for so many years. This is not new to God, by the way. False teachers have been out there all along, and guess who started it? Some snake in a, in a, in a garden started to declare false things about him. Remember? That's Genesis 3. It hasn't gone away. So God does know what he's talking about, obviously. And he gives Old Testament testimonials here of how he's done with it before. Verse 5, he talks about the people coming out of Egypt. That's days of Moses and the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And uh, not all of them made it, did they? How many? Two. Two. Two out of some, maybe two million? Not very good statistics there. But two of them did make it out of that. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. What was their primary problem? Unbelief. Unbelief. Of all things to say, unbelief? How much do you need to convince you that God's with you? He parted the Red Sea. And they walked on dark, dry ground. Would that make any impact on your life? Maybe? I think so. He gave you manna every morning. Would that make a difference? He provides for you. He gave them water out of a rock. Go try that this afternoon. See how good you are. Getting water out of a rock. God provided for them. He protected them. He had a cloud over them during the day, which was a beautiful thing. But that was a Shekinah glory guiding them where they needed to go. But what a wonderful umbrella in a desert heat. And at night, he lit it up. And it was fire. So they could see where they were going. And it also provided warmth because the desert gets cold at night. In every way, God thought of their needs and was visibly present among them. And they had unbelief. 
You think that's remarkable? We would have done better, right? Yeah. That was their sin. The sin of unbelief. They were led so clearly and they did not believe. Do you realize something? I'll just move you to New Testament thought for a minute. Unbelief is a sin. Did you know that? That's not something that God plays lightly with. Unbelief is a sin. And do you know that belief in Jesus Christ is not optional? Think about this for a minute. When Jesus was talking to Moses, I mean to Nicodemus rather, he did talk to Moses too, but when he was talking to Nicodemus in John 3, he, do not be amazed when I say to you, he said, you must be born again. It is binding. That's the Greek word for binding. It is necessary. That's not optional. You must be born again. And then he said in verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And you say, well, that sounds optional. Wait. God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Next verse. 18. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already. That's pretty stunning. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God's punishment already rests upon those who do not believe. He punishes sin. And it's sitting on them right now. An unbeliever is walking under the wrath of God at this moment. That's scary, isn't it? Then John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But, and he picked the strongest Greek word you could say for but here. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's the contrast. He uses that word, does not obey, in the same sense as does not believe. Belief is required of a person if he's going to have eternal life. It's required. God expects it. And when the world doesn't believe, that's a sin. That's a scary thing, I know. But God's consistent. The Old Testament, he held them accountable for unbelief. He holds people accountable today for unbelief. It's not optional. Second illustration was also in this passage. He talked about it in verse number 6. Angels who sinned. And a very interesting passage, and like I said, we'll give a little more emphasis in the evening, but we're talking about a group of angels that did not keep their abode. They sinned. Based on a passage in Genesis 6, we believe, and what God's commentary was on that, was that God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Theologically, you put the word yuck next to that. That's a bad, bad, bad view. But that's what God saw. And Second Peter 2, 4 says, And God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, committed them into the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Because they did not, as verse 6 says here, they did not keep their own domain. There's a lot behind that, but that's a mess. God even punishes angels. So don't think he's going to avoid the false teacher. And the illustration number three was Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know quite a bit about those two names and what they have to deal with about gross immorality and the people who indulged in it. 
And uh, we read in verse 7, these cities were destroyed, but look at the very end of verse 7. These cities are also exhibits for us today. They're exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. God's very serious about false teaching. These three pictures are basically wrapped up in two thoughts. One, they are disbelieving. And two, they are badly behaving. That's the two common things about a false teacher all the way through the New Testament. Bad doctrine, bad actions. Bad doctrine, bad actions. And when Jude gets to verse 8, he puts it right on the button. He says, yet in the same way, these men. Bad doctrine, bad actions. They also go dreaming, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they revile angelic majesties. Disbelief, disobedience, replacing truth with dreams. Boy, that's sneaky. Because who, who questions somebody's dream? Oh, I must be right, God's telling you something. But if it's contrary to God's word, it's wrong. That's why we need to know God's word. <laughs> Because people would tell us things, and you've got to listen carefully. They defile the flesh. There's bad actions there. They reject authority. If they reject the Lord's authority, in verse number 4, you can be sure they will reject the authority of other men too. Especially when they are confronted. Brian and I were having to talk about that a little bit this morning. But that's very true. You can see this line up very simply when you start to understand false teaching. They, they do not like to be corrected. They do not like it when you say, yeah, but Scripture says this. Scripture says that. I dealt with uh, people before. Some of you know this story. But I was young in the ministry. I was just two or three years in, and a guy came to our church, and uh, he looked really impressive. He looked like everything you'd expect of a great spiritual leader and such like that. I don't know, the appearance of his, whatever. People flocked to him right after the service. They said, oh, we got to have him join the church, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I went out and spoke to him. We had lunch. He says, come over, you know, we'll have lunch together. I said, all right. So I, went, I wanted to know more about him. And he sat there, and he started talking about the things of the church and passages I was familiar with and things like that. And then suddenly there was a strange feeling going on there that, this wasn't right. Something wasn't right. There was a little of this and a little of that. And you know, I always say it this way, but when there's something in the refrigerator that's beyond its date, you could smell it. You may not know what it is, but it's in there. And I started to smell something. And I thought, wait a minute, what is he saying? I let him go on and talk, and I'm calculating in my head, that can't be right. That's not right. That can't be right. And, and so... When we were done with our dinner, I, I went home, pulled out a book on my shelf, and started to scour through it, saying, this can't be true. There's something wrong here. It was uh, Walter Martin's book, Kingdom of the Cults. And I had a feeling I was going to find it. And it was a long ways into the book before I found Armstrongism. And I started to read it, and I said, this guy is the textbook. And I found what he was teaching, and it scared me first. I said, ooh, I don't want that in my church. So I studied it. 
I studied it solid for a week. Just had to know everything I could know about what it was. And I studied God's word carefully. And then he says, hey, why don't we get together and talk again? I joined him for dinner. He didn't come alone. He brought his guru. I call him a guru. I don't know what he was. He was above him. And he says, oh, he wants to talk to you too. And they started in on me again. Thank the Lord. The Lord helped me be ready for that. It was like taking the final exam. It was terrible. I was sweating like crazy. But every time they'd bring something up, I'd start this way. I'd go like this while they're talking. And then once he finished, I said, and then I started reading a passage that contradicted it. And then they said, oh, let's go on. So they moved to the next one, and I started this way. And I'd get to another passage, and when they were finished, I started reading Scripture. And you know that guy got madder and madder by the minute? He never opened his Bible. He kept thumping on it with his finger. And finally his friend said, you're going to hurt that cover. And he took the Bible away from him. And then they both got up and walked out. And I almost, I was exhausted. I almost collapsed. It was like, like, that was terrible. But you know what? You confront them with God's word and they can't stand it. That is absolutely true of false teaching. And when you have a false teacher among you and you start to deal with God's word, watch to see how they respond to it. When they get angry about God's word, when they get frustrated about God's word, guess what they're doing? They've denied it a long time ago. They don't want authority. They don't want correction. They want left alone. They revile angelic majesties. Of all things, Jude says, they're very bold to stand up against angelic powers, which they know nothing about, which they don't realize angels are so superior to them in strength anyway, or wisdom, or anything else you could put in the books there. But the example in verse number 9, which we're not really going into depth about this, it was just Michael was arguing with uh, Satan over the body of Moses, and he didn't even use his own strength or power to confront He said, the Lord rebuke you. And what that has to do with all this is that false teachers do things that even Michael the archangel wouldn't do. That's their boldness. What's the point? Verse 10. These men revile the things they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. That's what Jude first gave us as a picture of these people. Already you're saying, I don't want to meet one, right? I don't want to see one. I don't want them around me. You're thinking that way. That's the way I think too, by the way. But you have to know how they operate. And they're consistent in their operations. Unbelief. They abandon where they're supposed to be. They exhibit bad behavior. They follow dreams. They defile the flesh. They speak about things they know nothing about. And they go excessive in their actions and their words far beyond angels would ever go. Does that help? That's where you picture them. That's what you see in them. That's what Jude is describing. If they are allowed to have their way, they will tear up a church. I guarantee it. They will tear up a church. Never, never has there ever been a record ever that a false teacher has been good for the church. Never. And there never will be. It's that bad. So if they're allowed to have their way. So obviously there's a danger here, and the problem is they're very good at getting followers. They're very good at it. You would say, 
Pastor, but now we know what's what. We should be able to avoid their trap. We should not. But that's not true of so many places. So many churches. Peter says this, and let me, let me just say it. Second Peter 2, 2. Many will follow their sensuality. Many. That's a bad word to me. That scares me. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. So what I want to do with you today, <laughs> that's just to prep you for it. Verse number 11. Verse number 11. I'm going to pull out a camera, okay? No, not literally, you know, figuratively here. I'm going to show you what they look like in three pictures. Last week, my sister pulled out the photo album. You guys like that moment? All your pictures from when you were like baby all the way up and you, you see those pictures and you say, I don't want to look at those anymore, those goofy things. You know, when your ears were bigger than anything else on your body and things like that. And you say, I, 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 most people don't enjoy looking at their kids' pictures or baby pictures and say, that's, that's, I'm so much different now. We've changed a lot, haven't we? But she pulled it out and uh, there was it. Well, I glanced through it and I saw again. Those pictures I'd seen before. Some of them are dear to me, but the ones with me in them, they kind of alarm me a little. We're critical of ourselves, I know. But here's a picture that you're not going to like. I'm going to set three photographs in front of you, and you're going to say yuck in every single case when you look at them. But there are three people in verse number 11 that uh, false teachers are compared to. They have the same picture in the yearbook. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay, they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. Three pictures for you that reflect the false teacher. And he started with that really heavy phrase, Woe to them. That seems to be reserved when God is turning up the heat to the highest degree. You'll see it in the book of Revelation when the uh, persecution or the, the punishment on the people gets to be the worst. God says, woe, woe to them. And this is where he uses it again. Woe to them for a false teacher. So, you know you're into something really heavy when you see these words. But these words are also somewhat progressive. Progressive in nature. And I'm going to present it this way to you because as we look at our pictures, you know, when we're there three years old and then five years old and then all those school pictures all the way up through 12th grade, you know, they're all there in the book. And you see a change, don't you? You think so? They're going along, they're different every single year and, and yet they're the same but they're growing differently. These three pictures have something in common but they also show a progression of maturing, if I could use the word maturing, or growing, growing in their unbelief, growing in their sinful behavior. All right? So there's a progression of sorts as we look at these pictures. And so I'm going to start with verse 11. The first picture is that of Cain. Now I'll tell you what they start with. They distort. Worship. They distort worship. Now, we've already seen in verse number 4 
that they distort theology. They turn God's grace into licentiousness. And they deny the lordship of Christ. That's a big problem. But that doesn't, that's not where it ends. It moves to the next step. And the next step is now, how do you worship? If you have denied the things that are true theologically about God, do you think that's going to affect the way you worship Him? Absolutely. And this is the very next picture you see. They distort worship. In the path of Cain, they follow. We'll talk about this just for a second. And give me a, give you a picture of what you're looking at. You see a picture of Cain in front of you, all right? Imagine him however you want, all right? You've got Cain sitting there in front of you. But Cain is on a road. Cain is heading someplace. There's progress. And the idea of a path or a journey, like it says here in, in verse number 11, it says, for they have gone the way of Cain. There, anytime you're on a way or a path or, or whatever, you're making progress, right? You're moving. You're going down the road. And that, and that idea means that they're heading somewhere. But it's also the picture of your conduct. God uses that a lot in the scriptures to talk about your way, the way that you live, the, the life that you live, the behavior that you live, the way you think, you feel, you decide, all of that's in that picture too. So, you're familiar that Cain was very early in Scripture, right? What book am I going to? Genesis. Very good. Let's go to Genesis 4 for a minute. Genesis chapter 4. It starts talking about Cain right away. Cain and a brother, Abel, verse number 2 defines him. Abel is a keeper of flocks. He's like a shepherd. Cain was a tiller of the ground. He's a, he's a farmer. It came about in verse number three. This is where our story begins. came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. He brought radishes and cucumbers and eggplant, right? Abel, on his part, also brought of the first things of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. All right, now, questions are arising immediately. How did they know what to bring? How did they know they needed to sacrifice? We're going to start with an assumption God had told them. He talked with Adam and Eve. He told them they were leaving the garden. He expelled them. I don't think that meant that God says, okay, I'm done with you. Never talk to you again. These guys didn't have the word of God. They didn't have a copy like you do today. They didn't know. They didn't even know by illustration or example of somebody before them. Did they? No. They had no way to know what's what. And apparently, we're going to say apparently, God must have instructed them on sacrifice and the reason for it. Because somewhere in the curse itself, in chapter 3, he starts talking about blood sacrifice. Right? In that, there was an understanding. I don't know how it exactly worked. When we get to heaven, we'll see the video, and then we'll say, oh, yeah. But until then, we just assume. Now, obviously, two offerings were brought, and only one was acceptable. God took the one that Abel brought, which was by blood. He killed an animal. He brought the fat of the animal. You'll find that the same thing is 
recommended or taught by God in Leviticus and other books too. This is the way God wanted it. Cain, he brought something. He brought, I mean, you can give him credit for it, right? He brought something, but he did not bring what he was told to bring, apparently. God had no regard for it. You say, okay, Cain, go out, make it better. And, of course, Cain thought that too, didn't he? What's the rest of the verse? God had no regard for Cain's. So, verse 5, Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, see, obviously talking to him, why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Go out there and fix it and do it right. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. All right, that should have fixed it, but it didn't. Cain told his brother Abel, and it came about when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. God punished Cain, didn't he? He he punished him. You could read it later in the passage still. But he had actions, and it led to punishment. Cain, according to, I'm going to read you some commentaries here just for a minute. Cain brought a bloodless sacrifice to God. That is the way of the apostate liberals of our day. You know that was written a long time ago. They look at culture instead of Calvary. Hmm. The Schofield Bible says that Cain was a type of religious, natural men who believe in a God and in religion... But they do it after their own will and reject redemption by blood. If you compel a teacher of religion to explain the atonement, the apostate teacher will explain it away. In Hebrews 4, guess who's commended by faith, walking by faith? Abel or Cain? Abel. You want to read another passage that's pretty stunning? Go to First John for a minute. Keep your fingers here. It might come in handy. 1 John chapter 3. Brace yourself, okay? Really, brace yourself. 1 John 3, verse 11 and 12. This is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, And slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. You say, okay, what's what's that got to do with it? When you dig out the words here, that word, he slayed, slew his brother, it's the word to butcher like an offering. He was so angry with God that he sacrificed his brother. Is that horrific to you? It's like, wow, really? Oh, that's terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. What's that mean? Cain is a type of selfishness, jealous hate. He's absent of faith. He's absent of love. One person said it might mean either they are disobedient, they devise their own way of worship, they're envious of others, they hate others with a murderous spirit. And they gave that as options. I say all of the above. 
They journeyed that way. They walked down that path. They traversed it. That was the way that they cared to live. A false teacher would do that, by the way. And that's where it gets really, really, really tricky for us to identify them because we're staring at the photograph and say, but I recognize that photograph. It looks normal to me. But when you really investigate it closely, look at what they're doing. They've already replaced grace with sin. They've already denied the Lord as their master. And now what are they doing? They're changing your worship of him. And they're saying, oh, you don't have to go his way. Let's mix in a little of this and a little of that and a little of this. And they stir the world into their religious practices. They're religious, but they're not righteous. Do you know a difference? That's scary because it's hard to spot the difference. There's a lot of religion in our world today. But that doesn't mean it's righteous. He was not righteous. And that's photograph number one. And that's enough to say, ooh, how do we know when they're among us? Start to watch how they're adjusting the way we worship. Oh, it's a careful road to watch. But that's the road they're on. I don't like that clock anymore. Our time is up, and I've only given you one picture. But I kind of thought that way, because I had so many notes yesterday. I'm thinking, I'm never going to get through this. And guess what? I didn't. Tomorrow, or next week I will, unless you want to stay for another hour. I don't mind, but uh, that's okay. Study it a little bit, will you, this week? Look again at verse number 11. Think about these other two pictures. Balaam, a good story to read, by the way. I'll give you the passage. You go and read it this week, because I want you to have it in your head. Numbers 22 to 25. Study the Balaam, the life of Balaam. Look out for that donkey, too, while you're at it. 22 to 25. And then, and then go to Korah. You know Korah? Is that Korah? Who's Korah? Numbers 16. Read his story. Read his story. We're going to look at their photographs next week. Okay. Watch how it progresses. It's not pretty, but we have to do this. All this to say, folks, pull closer to your Lord. Pull closer to Him. Stay close. Keep close. As Jude would say toward the end of his book, that's where we need to be. Close to our shepherd. Close to our Father. That's where we need to be. Grow in that, please. Is an appeal from a pastor who's very concerned about uh, what goes on in our world and, and uh, whether or not we're able to endure it, to face it, to spot it. We need to mature. And I'm going to plead with you every chance I get. Get into his word and study it. Grow, please. That's what we all need. Do it for somebody else. All right? Do it for somebody else in this building. Heavenly Father, your word is, is powerful, it's active, it's sharp, it cuts us very deep. And yet that's exactly what we need. As we walk along, Lord, may we not be careless in the environment around us. May we not be so careless to let those creep in among us that would damage the flock, that would cause us to lose our steadfastness in your grace and start to wander ourselves. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us. Because these things are hard for us to spot, but our shepherd identifies them perfectly. So help us to stay close to you, Father, of all things.
Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.